Father, I ask you to do the work of grace right now. That for those who are discouraged, who are so tempted to beat themselves up and to hone in on their failures and to focus on their weaknesses, to feel lonely and sad and down, Lord, we ask that you would show yourself as present and as loving and powerful that you would come near and you would build up. You would set their gaze and set mine upon you and your purposes and your goodness and glory. Lord, I also pray. I pray for your people to have an appropriate fear of you, a hatred for sin, and to not take casually or indifferently our pursuit of things that displease you. And so, Lord, I ask for a holy fear to come upon your people. That the result would be more grace. Not living in panic or terror, but grace to see that Christ paid it all. He will give us the grace to love generously and to abstain from the evils of the world. And so, God, we pray for your empowering grace. Help us to know you now in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning and Happy New Year. I uh, haven't seen many of you since it is 2014, and I'm still messing up when I write down the date. Um, But I want to welcome you, and I am really glad to be here with you. We are not going to do kind of a, you know, a state of the church kind of address, a New Year's beginning kind of sermon. We're just going to dive right in, because we're going through the book of Acts. And so, as I just read, we are in Acts chapter 4 and 5. And so that's where we will begin. Now, as we have been going through the book of Acts, we have seen that some of the most amazing things have been happening among God's people. Namely, it ended where the people of God, both Peter and John, who were proclaiming the gospel, were persecuted. And as they were treated poorly, God in His grace delivered them. And they went back to the people who were waiting on them. And they all gathered together and they prayed. And they asked that God would help them to have boldness to proclaim this gospel that had already gotten two of their own imprisoned. And it said that when they gathered to pray, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 31 with me of chapter 4. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. This isn't a metaphorical shaking like the hairs are raising up on your arms kind of thing. This is physical ground moving this sense of the Spirit of God in an unprecedented way moving among His people. And this is where we are and then we kind of run into the passage that we are in today. Now I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had someone that you really respect come up to you and tell you how much they appreciate you? Have you ever had someone that you really respect come up to you and just tell you how thankful they are for you? Have you ever had a boss that just said, that was a great job on that project. I really appreciate that. Have you ever had co-workers come up and say, how did you do that? That was great. Thanks. Can you teach me? Can you help me? 
Have you ever had someone say, hey, you're a good listener. Thanks for caring for me. Have you ever had people just really encourage you and to express their pleasure in you? Well, I hope you have. I hope you have. That's what the people of God are to be known for. For those of you who have, there is nothing like having pleasure, approval, acceptance, thanksgiving being expressed to you. And as a Christian, there is no greater joy than to know your Heavenly Father is pleased with you. To know that He accepts you. That He loves you. And this gospel that has been proclaimed in the early church here as we're looking at the story of our ancestors, that is the forefathers, those who have gone before us in the church, this gospel, this good news that is being proclaimed is a good news that sinners can find peace with God. Not just this emotional warm fuzzy, but they can positionally not be under God's wrath. But that Jesus Christ was sent to express that God the Father loves His people. That He loves them so much that He sends His only Son to die in their place that anyone who would trust, who would surrender their whole life to Jesus can be made new. A new creation. Not have to live in the old anymore. Sins forgiven. Wiped clean. This is the Gospel. That you do not stand on your own righteousness. That God accepts you and loves you and is pleased with you based upon the righteousness of His Son that covers you. All by simply not doing for God, but by trusting in the death of His Son. Saying, I cannot save myself. Christ is my only hope. That is the good news. That's what is being proclaimed. That's what these people were living their lives for. And now, as they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they want to continue to speak that word with boldness. And so, as we dive into the passage, I want to just lay out the main banner for this text. And that is, there is no greater pleasure to be had on this earth than the pleasure that is found in living to please God. The greatest pleasure to be had is found in living for the pleasure of God. To please Him. To honor Him. To give Him glory. That you would be, as Lecrae says, you would be a billboard for God's greatness. And people would be able to read His glory all over your life. That is the greatest joy and pleasure that any human can have. And so what this passage set up, sets up is almost two stories. It's the Story one is a result of when the grace of God comes and fills up a people, all that God does. And story two is the pain of displeasure. Story one is the joy of seeking to live for the pleasure of God. Story two is the pain that comes from living for things that displease God. And so chapter 4, verses 32 through 37 are the results of grace. And chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 are highlighting the pain of displeasure. So let's look at it together. And let's look at, first of all, the results of grace. And see how the peace comes to these people that God is working in their life as they are living for His pleasure. Now, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Good night. Do you know what this means? 
full number, let's take it, how many are in the church as it stands right now? We have 5,000 men so far that we were told exist, which means there are probably 10,000 or so people. You've got women and children that are involved as well. The church is about 10,000 in number, and now it says that they were of one heart and soul. It is hard to get five people to be of one heart and soul, let alone 10,000. What is this saying? It is saying that the Spirit of God has come and He has created a people and He has unified this people around the glorious gospel of Jesus, around His death and resurrection. And here's the result. What's it saying? Verse 32. And the result of this grace poured out in the heart was no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own. But they had everything in common. Where does this kind of one heart come from? Well, Ezekiel 11 verse 19 tells us that this is a sign of what's called the New Covenant. It's a sign of Jesus' working in the lives of people and building up His own church when Ezekiel says, I will give them one heart. A unity. A new heart. A new name. And I will give them, what's this one heart? It's a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. A heart of life. A heart of sensitivity. A heart of desire. A heart of love for the things of God. That's what God has done here. So much so that they were now taking the things that many in the world hold the dearest possessions, material things, and they were saying, this is not mine. It is yours, God. Show me how to use it for you. What an amazing message on the tail end of Christmas. When many of you were recipients of things. Oh, the freedom that it is to say, nothing in my home is mine. It is yours. Show me, O oh God, how to use it for you. Show me how to love others with this. That is freeing. And that's what's happening here in the early church. One heart, one soul. The gospel is everything. Christ is enough. And now my materials, I can be free with them. And it says, verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, such that, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Because as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. In this passage, it's called grace. When people proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and when that good news results in a generosity, a liberality with things, it's grace. Do you see that in the passage? Verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. Grace is God's help. He's doing this in the church. And what was freeing about this was that it wasn't a message that the apostles were preaching. It wasn't a message of give more. It wasn't a message of come on, get with the program. Give money here. How did the, how did the generous hearts come? It was as the apostles were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
as they were simply speaking the beautiful, powerful gospel, and those words were being heard, it was filling up the people so much that the natural result of grace was to give. That's the natural result. To see need and to want to meet it. We have to be able to see it is a joy to have freedom from possessions and to give generously. Please understand, when these baskets come around, this is not some sense of religious ritual. It is the opportunity to be free with what you have. Do you know what it means when you give to this church? You are supporting missionaries on the field. You are caring for those in need among our body. You are caring for those in need in our community. You are helping to make sure this facility can run. We've got a place to meet and places for ministries all throughout the week. You're sustaining pastors so that they can go and they can minister the gospel and they can equip others. This is an amazing opportunity to give. But even more than that, what were these people doing? The apostles had said, well, heck, if you're getting so generous then, let's just, we'll all gather this. And they put the proceeds of the land at the feet of the apostles and they trusted the apostles to disseminate it as the needs were there. And so it all came in some kind of common wallet and they were kind of trying to assess the needs and to care for the people. And this is what we're also trying to do here at this church. We sent out an email about three weeks ago, just something that we in-house are calling The List. And it's, you know, not The Black List or something, you know, some TV show. It's not trying to be hip. We just didn't know what else to call it. It's The List. And this list is our desire to say, if you have abilities, like you can work on cars, or you can fix things in homes, or you're a financial counselor, or you can help people make a budget, you can counsel people. People have said you got a gift there. Then put your name on the list and let us know. Or if you want to, above and beyond what you give to the church, you want to generously give to meet some of the financial needs of those that are within our body, put your name on the list. It's our attempt to say there is a way that we can, as a people, make needs known and we can generously give so that the people among us aren't in major crisis need. And that's been happening. We've been seeing people, just their lives being altered, not having to constantly react to things, but to be proactive and create savings. And we're also providing life coaches and financial counselors and things like that so that it's a holistic thing. This is not about entitlement, but empowerment. We want to invite you, if you want to be a part of that list, send an email, info at tccrally.org. It's on the bulletin thing that you got when you came in. We want to share what we have so that there is not need among us. But what was really interesting is they shared what they had in common so that no one had need. It was not a sharing of under compulsion. It was not a law that said you have to go sell all your land. This was just a comment of how grace was at work in the church. It was not a command, you better sell everything. It was, there are needs out here. And the result of grace was people actually selling property and houses in order to meet some of those needs. Amazing. Amazing. And they laid it at the apostles' feet. 
to be disseminated as was the need. Now, some, although this is an example that is being commended of these early believers, it, is, it cannot be argued that this particular way of expressing their generosity was now a command for all believers through all time. You even see in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6, there's other ways that they sought to care for the poor. Acts chapter 6, they developed a group of godly men who were kind of deacon-like guys, and they helped care for the needs of the widows who, in the daily distribution of things, were being overlooked. And so they created this group of men that were trying to help understand and meet certain needs and equip others to do so. In Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, there was great famine in the town, uh, in the land. And what was commanded at that point was, here's the need. As you have ability, send relief to the believers in Judea because of the great famine. You hear that? As you have ability, send relief. This is kind of the general demeanor as it comes to the people of God. What is being pointed out here is the generous spirit of caring for the needs of others. That is what is meant to be taken away. We must be generous in caring for the needs of others. That's what it looks like as grace reigns into the heart. Others sometimes, when they look at this passage, they actually think communism is being promoted. I don't know if you kind of get that, like this socialist agenda that, you know, we all need to pour into one governmental pot and make everything uh, run through the government. That's not what's being promoted here. Um, Namely, number one, it's not the government. It's the church that's going at it right here, and they are gathering together. But it was voluntary also. This was not uh, out of obligation or requirement. It was something that happened as the Spirit of God moved through the people of God. We even see that Barnabas, it doesn't say that he sold everything in verse 37, but he sold a field, which is one other example that this was, this is a good practice that you give away, and he was a godly example. And it's also not, some might read this and say that property ownership is just wrong, and if you're a real Christian, you shouldn't own any property. Well, that's not what the New Testament bears out at all either. You have in Acts chapter 17, Jason, he's said to be a solid believer, and he has a house in which people meet in. Oh no, he has a house. No, that's not a problem. It's not a crisis for the early church. It wasn't that you had to sell everything. This is just a mark of grace. In Acts 21, verse 8, Philip the evangelist, who goes out and speaks the gospel powerfully in Acts chapter Chapter 8, it was his house where Paul took refuge in Acts 21. And so property ownership was not the point. This wasn't, we want so bad to make laws. That's not the point. The point here is, when grace fell upon the people of God, they saw need, and they were generous to meet needs. So what's the example being commended? It is the eagerness to meet the needs of others. It is the liberty with things and generosity and the joy that comes from giving. And ultimately, it's something that I think is so crucial and precious for the believer is what Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That you're not consumed with your problems and what you have and all that's going on in your life, but you are freed up to consider the needs of others. It is a freedom. You're not worried about do you have enough esteem or do you need to beat yourself up in some way to kind of lower your esteem? No, that's not the point. Should you think about yourself more or think about yourself less? You should think less about yourself. That's freedom. 
and more about how to love. It's a way to wake up. When you wake up and you're just overwhelmed and anxious about your life, about your job, about your studies, about your kids, about your relationships, whatever it is, that's what the devil wants you to rehearse. Your failures, your crises, all the pain that you might be going through. The freedom of self-forgetfulness is a clear awareness of Christ and His work and His glory. And it is asking the question, what, what would love look like today? God, help me to serve somebody else today. These are the things that come and that we begin to see in the early church. It's a freedom from obsession about me and life and circumstances and weaknesses and failures. And it's a mind on God, His glory, seeking to live for Him. It's a mind of love. Such that in verse 37, 36, we see an example that is given to us. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, and now Barnabas is being highlighted because he's an example, and also he's going to be one of the leaders in church planting later on in Acts chapter 13. And so it says, Barnabas, who means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was an example of generosity. And so they laid him before the people to say, let's be generous together. Now, before we run into this next section of Acts, which clearly highlights the pain of living not for the pleasure of God. But God is clearly, as I've already said, holding up two stories. Story two is the pain of displeasure. What it means to not live for God and His glory and the pain that comes there. But in contrast, if you're looking then at the passage we just looked at, what you are looking at is the joy and pleasure that comes from pleasing God. And I want to hone in on that for a second because I'm concerned that Many Christians today don't live believing that God is pleased with their actions. I was reading a book uh, over the break, uh, two books actually, one, uh, both of them by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. One's called Crazy Busy, and another one is called Whole in Your Holiness. H-O-L-E, in your holiness. And as I was reading it, he was beginning to lay out um, just an example from his life. And it began to remind me of some things in my life of how I constantly wanted to please the Lord. I was a believer now once I got into my college years. And I wanted to please God with my life. But I still was all bound up in legalism and not in the freedom of the gospel. And I was constantly asking, well, I've got to do more for God. What's enough for God? I've got to do more for Him. And so, in college, for example, you know, you do your Bible studies then. You got better be in Bible study on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then you had, you know, your campus crusade or campus outreach or Baptist student something on Wednesday. And so you would go to that. And then you would hear, oh, they're going to do a trip over spring break. Well, I better go do that. And then you hear, oh, well, if you're really spiritual, over the summer you're going to go to do some missionary type work. So, oh, I better go do that. And then, you know, well, somebody, then all of a sudden you feel like you're pretty good. And then somebody says something else they're doing. Oh, well, I'm going to go serve at this house over here and care for an orphan. Oh, good night. Okay, well, I better go do that as well. And all of a sudden, I was constantly asking, what is enough? When's enough? 
Because ultimately, deep down, I was asking, when will God be pleased with me? Many of you are there. Many of you are there. There's a crazy amount of good opportunity here in our community. Amazing opportunities. You can serve to care for the women in crisis pregnancy. and You can serve with Gateway and volunteer. You can serve as a mentor in Jobs for Life and help somebody who needs job skills and you just get to walk alongside people. You can be on this list and donate some of your time and, and resources. And you can serve in the nursery and you can work out in our community and we can go and meet our neighbors together. Well, but what about your neighborhood? Well, you can go around and look at your neighborhood and get to know your neighbors and see how you can meet them in crisis. And we have church on Sunday and we got community groups that meet in homes and you can just be a gospel sharer when you're out in the, doing exercise and things like that. There's tons of things to do. When's enough is the question. When will God be pleased? And that's why I started the sermon where I started it. There's two ways that God is pleased. One is He is pleased by faith. Not what you do for Him, but do you trust Him? It is an amazing, freeing gift to know that God looks at a sinner who trusts not in themselves, but in His Son, and He says, forgiven, and I love you, and I'm pleased with you, and I accept you. But I want to take it one more step forward. Do you know that the Bible says that your actual actions can please God? Like you can do something that pleases Him? Kevin DeYoung was talking about the fear that there are categories that the only obedience that seems to be pleasing in the mind of some Christians is perfection. That's what it means. I'm pleasing if I'm perfect. And deep down you know you're not perfect so you feel like you're never pleasing. Oh, you live in some la-la land where you think you're doing perfect things. Good night. Get out of that one. So, can we really please God with our actions? Well, the Bible is filled with passages that say God is pleased with our actions, which means we can do them and He is pleased. Although we are imperfect in our obedience, He is pleased with our actions. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 says, Those who bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God, please God. Romans 14 says, Those who are patient with the weaker brother, please God. Children, those who obey their parents, Please God. God is pleased when we proclaim the truth, it says in 1 Timothy. Those who proclaim the truth of the Scripture, please God. Do you know that God is pleased with your actions? Yes. Some in this room, some in this world, they need to hear the message. Don't waste your life. Get up off the couch. Start serving people. Go live a radical, risk-taking life. Give your money away in many ways, shape, and form. Give your life to care for people. But many of you are not sitting in that place. Many of you are trying so hard to earn His pleasure when you need to just celebrate where you're pleasing Him. Have you ever done the dishes for someone in your home with a happy heart? God's pleased. Have you ever given somebody a ride because you cared about them? God is pleased. Have you ever had somebody over to eat at your house 
because you knew that they just needed an encouragement and they needed provision. God is pleased. Have you ever opened up your home and let somebody stay in a room in your house because you cared for them? God is pleased. Have you ever let somebody use your car because you realize it's not yours, it's God's? God is pleased. He's pleased with the heart of love. And we need to celebrate how God is pleased and celebrate the grace that He's given us. Kevin DeYoung says this, God is pleased through Christ to accept our sincere obedience, although it contains many weaknesses and imperfections. God not only works obedience in us by grace... It's also by His grace that our imperfect obedience is acceptable in His sight. And even the smallest act of obedience is worth celebrating. He goes on to say, God is not hypersensitive and captured by fits of rage over your slight mistakes or offenses. Instead, He sees... Your actions of faith and love as sweet and precious and pleasing to Him. Live in His pleasure. He not only loves you positionally, He has accepted you in Christ, but He loves the good deeds that you do. And He is pleased with them. And He's got a smile on His face over your life. Hone in on that, not your failures. The devil wants you to hone in on your failures and mistakes. Hone in on Christ's work and the grace that He's given you to love, even when it's hard. Now, there is also pain that comes from displeasure. There is pain that comes from not living for the pleasure of God. The Christian's mantra is, I want to please my Father. I want to live for Him. There is pain in not living for Him. The pain of displeasure. You need to know that God can be displeased at obedience and still be the king of great grace. Let's look at chapter 5. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this word, kept back, it's used in only a few places in the Bible, and it's used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. What we have there is the sin of Achan in the valley of Achor. Now, I know that's not going to be a common story that you know, but you do know this story, the story of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down, right? You know, they you know, marched around and you know, sing the song and, woo, and the walls fell down and Israel wins. Well, there was something that was supposed to happen when the walls fell down and Israel won. All the things that were there, God called devoted things to him. Things like beautiful clothing and silver and gold and those things. He called them devoted things and they were supposed to be destroyed. They were not to be taken as personal property. And Achan took a garment that he saw as beautiful and silver that he craved and a bar of gold and he takes it and buries it in his tent. The result? Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, goes out to fight the people of Ai. That is Ai. And the people of Ai squash them like a bug. And Joshua's like, Why? I thought we were 
Your people, I thought you were going to provide for us. Why did this just happen? And he said, someone in your midst has taken the devoted things. The things that were meant only for me. The things that I said to destroy. And so Joshua goes throughout the camp. Achan comes forward and he says, I saw the beauty of the garment. And he says, I coveted the silver and the gold. I sinned against the Lord. And the Lord immediately struck Achan dead in the valley of Achor. This valley was a place of destruction. It was a place that was known for that man's sin, living against the pleasure of God, not trusting God, not believing that His way was best. And so now there's a parallel here that... Ananias and Sapphira were not trusting God's good provision, were not trusting His ways, and they kept back for themselves a part of the land. Now, initially when I read this, I thought that it was a command for everybody to give all their land, and because they, or give all the money that they got from the land, and because they only gave a portion of it, then that's why some really bad things happened to Ananias and Sapphira. But that is not the case. Verse 3 and 4 help us understand that this was a voluntary action. They did not have to sell their property. They did not have to give all the money. Well, then what in the world was the problem? Well, let's look at it. Verse 3. But Peter who is standing now as like a prophet because God speaks to him and about these things that really he should have no way of knowing apart from God's intervention. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? First of all, lying to the Holy Spirit. You'll see later on, he says, end of verse 4, you have lied not to men but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. This is one clear passage that says the Holy Spirit is a person and He is God. But it says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? It's the same language that's used of the Spirit of God filling the heart of the people. What is going on here? Satan influenced Ananias and Sapphira to betray God, to trust in themselves, and to not follow God's ways. They did not do the action, Satan did not do the action for them and caused them to do it. For you see, in verse 4, Ananias has said that he is responsible. Peter says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You, Ananias, have not lied to man but to God. So Satan, influenced, tempt, filled the heart. Ananias opened that door wide open, listened to the devil, did not follow God, lived for his own pleasure, and lied. This is where we see the sin. The sin was the greater sin. He not only had greed, yeah, I'm going to keep some money back, just like Achan did. He had greed in his heart. But the greater sin, if you want to talk that way, the greater sin was that he lied. He lied saying, I'm giving it all. Look at how good I am. I'm giving it all. And he was only giving some. We see that in verse 4. Verse 4, while, Peter says, while it remained unsold, that means while it was still your property, did it not remain your own? It was your land. You were under no obligation to give your land. And then he says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? That means you could do with the money what you wish. 
So why now are you acting as if you're giving everything and lying about it when you're keeping something back? It was ultimately a pitch for the approval of man. Wanting the praise of people more than God. You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard those words, he fell down and breathed his last. Some of you, when I was talking about God is pleased with your actions, a verse might have come to mind. Isaiah 64, 6. You might have heard this before. But all of my righteous acts are like filthy rags. God can't be pleased with my actions. They're all like filthy rags. Do you know what that verse is actually saying? It's actually not talking about deeds done in faith, but deeds done in a charade. The people of Israel were playing the part, but not believing in the heart. It was a charade. It was just doing motions. Like in Isaiah 58 when they were fasting. But God said, that's not the fast I require. The fast I require is one of faith where you're giving your life for the poor. The righteous deeds that He's condemning in Isaiah 64.6 is the ones that are done for show. And that's exactly what's happening here. Those deeds done for show, they're like filthy rags. They're to be thrown away. They are not pleasing to the Lord. And what we have here is God visiting with His people. It's an anticipation of the final judgment. But God takes seriously the disruption of His people's holiness and unity and generosity. And mark this. Two people out of 10,000 was taken so seriously as a disruption, as an abuse in the church that it led to Ananias and Sapphira's death. Our sin affects one another. We must stop living under the illusion that our sin has no effects on one another. And just like when the people were about to enter the promised land, unique in history, God did a remarkable outpouring of His wrath upon Achan. Right when they're about to enter the promised land and He kills Achan. Here, right when you're about to enter into the spreading of the gospel among the Gentiles in a unique way in salvation history, Ananias and Sapphira are killed to show the seriousness of the pursuit of holiness for the people of God. The Spirit fills for witness. Satan filled for deceit. And our great holy God, who can hold the oceans in His hands? Who can give counsel to the Lord? Who can teach the One who knows all things? Who can fathom all His wondrous deeds? That is our holy God. Ananias and Sapphira disregarded Him. Their greed and their desire for praise. And it led to death. Three hours later, Sapphira comes. She's asked the same question. How much did you sell the land for? Oh, is this how much you sold it for? Yep, that's how much. And she lies. Exposes the greed. Exposes the desire for praise. Why have you done this together with your husband, it says. And Peter looks at her and says, You are going to die just like your husband just died. 
And it says at the end of the passage, verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed his last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. Young men, the young leaders of the church, the youth of TCC, take note. That would sober you up pretty quickly. When you see and you have to take one off who is dead and bury them. It's meant to give us just a sense of soberness that life is more than just about video games and naps and TV and money for iTunes and Instagram. It's more than just about making money. It's more than the possessions that we have. It is about a surrender of all of life to one who promises the greatest pleasure for those who live for his pleasure. The result of grace was unmistakable. They were generous with their life. They were generous with what they had. The pain of displeasure was also unmistakable. And what is meant to be remembered in this passage is verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Church, that does not mean God delights or even wants you to live in terror or panic. That is not what He wants for you. Because your sins have been forgiven. Christ has died in your place. They were put upon Him. He took the wrath that you deserved. I want to give you a passage. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. You know what happened to the valley of Achor? I'll tell you. Israel was told to have forgotten God, and here's the promise. Hosea 2, Therefore, behold, in the middle of her sin, he says, I'm going to allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and I will give her her vineyards. And here's the phrase, And I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. That's what God delights to do. To take in His grace the very areas of gross sin that used to characterize us and He wants to wash them clean by the blood of His Son and He wants to set us free in Him and He wants our lives now to be characterized as a door of hope. The very things that used to be the mark against us are now the evidence that His grace is at work and you can have hope as a follower of Jesus. And the fact that you and I sin daily and we don't die like Ananias and Sapphira is grace upon grace. And it is one more evidence that the wrath of God has been poured out upon the Son in our place and that He will give us the grace we need to live. Friends, live for the pleasure of God. Live for the pleasure of God. I know that as a daddy, when my kids do wrong, it does not jeopardize them being my children at all. I love them. They're my children. Nothing that they will do will ever change that fact. But do I discipline them? You sure bet I do. Why? Because now I've changed and I don't love them anymore? No. No. One author called it, Yes, it's a frown of displeasure, but it's a for you frown. Not an against you frown. It's a for you frown. It's a sense of, Why? Why do you live this way? You are hurting yourself. And as a daddy, if I, as a really bad daddy, as one that's nowhere near the goodness of our God, can understand that it doesn't jeopardize whether they're my children, but I discipline them because they are my children. And I love them in doing it. 
then surely we can grasp. God can be displeased with our sin and expose an area where we need to grow. But take heart at this. Whatever He exposes, He will give the grace to grow you in it. I promise you. That's the Gospel. So I pray you live for His grace. You live for His pleasure. And you find it as your greatest delight. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Christ. And I just ask that Christ our righteousness is our motto. But that God, we live for the glory of Your name. We live for You. We trust You. We say, oh God, even if I don't understand why You say to do things a certain way, I'm going to default that Your way is best. And I want to live for Your glory and Your pleasure. Thank You, O God, for taking our lives, our sinful hearts, for taking the valley of Achor and making it a door of hope, taking our very gross sins and washing them clean and making a door of hope for our hearts that one day we will be with You face to face forever. And so, Lord, I ask... I ask that we would believe the promise that You have conquered every sin on the cross. And therefore, You will, as You expose our needs, You also will walk alongside us and give us the grace we need to be generous, to give of our lives, to live lives of love, and to grow in the knowledge of You. Do it, I pray. Do it, I pray so that you get glory in this church, in this city, in this nation, and to the ends of the earth. I love you. Thanks for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.